Chapter 11 of History of Astronomy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Henry. History of Astronomy by George Forbes. Chapter 11 History of the Telescope and Spectroscope. Accounts of Wonderful Optical Experiments by Roger Bacon, who died in 1292, and in the 16th century by Diggs, Baptiste of Porta, and Antonio de Dominis, have led some to suppose that they invented the telescope. The writer considers that it is more likely that these notes refer to a kind of camera obscura, in which a lens throws an inverted image of a landscape on the wall. The first telescopes were made in Holland, the originator being either Henry Lipperhey, Zacharias Janssen, or James Metius, and the date 1608 or earlier. In 1609, Galileo, being in Venice, heard of the invention, went home and worked out the theory and made a similar telescope. These telescopes were all made with a convex object glass and a concave eye lens, and this type is spoken of as the Galilean telescope. Its defects are that it has no real focus where crosswires can be placed, and that the field of view is very small. Kepler suggested the convex eye lens in 1611, and Scheiner claimed to have used one in 1617. But it was Huygens who really introduced them. In the 17th century, telescopes were made of great length, going up to 300 feet. Huygens also invented the compound eyepiece that bears his name, made of two convex lenses to diminish spherical aberration. But the defects of color remained although their cause was unknown until Newton carried out his experiments on dispersion and the solar spectrum. To overcome the spherical aberration, James Gregory of Aberdeen and Edinburgh in 1663, in his Optica Promota, proposed a reflecting speculum of parabolic form. But it was Newton, about 1666, who first made a reflecting telescope, and he did it with the object of avoiding color dispersion. Some time elapsed before reflectors were much used. Pound and Bradley used one presented to the Royal Society by Hadley in 1723. Hawksby, Bradley, and Malinot made some, but James Short of Edinburgh made many excellent Gregorian reflectors from 1732 till his death in 1768. Newton's trouble with refractors, chromatic aberration, remained insurmountable until John Dolan, born 1706, died 1761, after many experiments found out how to make an achromatic lens out of two lenses, one of crown glass, the other of flint glass, to destroy the color, in a way originally suggested by Euler. 
He soon acquired a great reputation for his telescopes of moderate size. But there was a difficulty in making flint glass lenses of large size. The first actual inventor and constructor of an achromatic telescope was Chester Moore Hall, who was not in trade and did not patent it. Towards the close of the 18th century, a Swiss named Guinand at last succeeded in producing larger flint glass discs free from stray. Frauenhofer of Munich took him up in 1805 and soon produced, among others, Struve's Dorpat refractor of 9.9 .9 inches diameter and 13.5 feet focal length, and another of 12 inches diameter and 18 feet focal length for Lamont of Munich. In the 19th century, gigantic reflectors have been made. Lasalle's two-foot reflector, made by himself, did much good work and discovered four new satellites. But Lord Ross's six-foot reflector, 54 feet focal length, constructed in 1845, is still the largest ever made. The imperfections of our atmosphere are against the use of such large apertures, unless it be on high mountains. During the last half-century, excellent specula have been made of silvered glass, and Dr. Common's five-foot speculum, removed since his death to Harvard, has done excellent work. Then there are the five-foot Yerkes reflector at Chicago and the four-foot by Grubb at Melbourne. Passing now from these large reflectors to refractors, further improvements have been made in the manufacture of glass by Chance of Birmingham, Fail and Montois of Paris, and Schott of Jena. While specialists in grinding lenses like Alvin Clark of the USA and others have produced many large refractors. Cook of York made an object glass 25-inch diameter for Newell of Gateshead, which has done splendid work at Cambridge. We have the Washington 26-inch by Clark, the Vienna 27-inch by Grubb, the Nice 29-and-a-half-inch by Gautier, the Pulkoa 30-inch by Clark. Then there was the sensation of Clark's 36-inch for the Lick Observatory in California, and finally his tour de force, the Yerkes 40-inch refractor for Chicago. At Greenwich, there is the 28-inch photographic refractor and the Thompson Equatorial by Grubb, carrying both the 26-inch photographic refractor and the 30-inch reflector. At the Cape of Good Hope, we find Mr. Frank McLean's 24-inch refractor with an object glass prism for spectroscopic work. It would be out of place to describe here the practical adjuncts of a modern equatorial, the adjustments for pointing it, the clock for driving it, the position micrometer and various eyepieces, the photographic and spectroscopic attachments, the revolving domes, observing seats, and rising floors, and different forms of mounting, the siderostats, and coelostats, and other convenient adjuncts, besides the registering chronograph 
and numerous facilities for aiding observation. On each of these, a chapter might be written, but the most important part of the whole outfit is the man behind the telescope, and it is with him that a history is more especially concerned. Spectroscope Since the invention of the telescope, no discovery has given so great an impetus to astronomical physics as the spectroscope, and in giving us information about the systems of stars and their proper motions, it rivals the telescope. Frauenhofer, at the beginning of the 19th century, while applying Dollard's discovery to make large achromatic telescopes, studied the dispersion of light by a prism, admitting the light of the sun through a narrow slit in a window shutter, an inverted image of the slit can be thrown by a lens of suitable focal length on the wall opposite. If a wedge or prism of glass be interposed, the image is deflected to one side. But, as Newton had shown, the images formed by the different colors of which white light is composed are deflected to different extents, the violet most the red least. The number of colors forming images is so numerous as to form a continuous spectrum on the wall with all the colors, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. But Frauenhofer found, with a narrow slit well focused by the lens, that some colors were missing in the white light of the sun, and these were shown by dark lines across the spectrum. These are the Fraunhofer lines, some of which he named by the letters of the alphabet. The D line is a very marked one in the yellow. These dark lines in the solar spectrum had already been observed by Wollaston. On examining artificial lights, it was found that incandescent solids and liquids including the carbon glowing in a white gas flame, give continuous spectra. Gases, except under enormous pressure, give bright lines. If sodium or common salt be thrown on the colorless flame of a spirit lamp, it gives a yellow color, and its spectrum is a bright yellow line agreeing in position with line D of the solar spectrum. In 1832, Sir David Brewster found some of the solar black lines increased in strength toward sunset and attributed them to absorption in the Earth's atmosphere. He suggested that the others were due to absorption in the sun's atmosphere. Thereupon, Professor J.D. Forbes pointed out that during a nearly total eclipse, the lines ought to be strengthened in the same way as that part of the sun's light coming from its edge passes through a great distance in the sun's atmosphere. He tried this with the annular eclipse of 1836, with a negative result which has never been accounted for, and which seemed to condemn Brewster's view. In 1859, Kirchhoff, on repeating Fraunhofer's experiment, found that if a spirit lamp with salt in the flame were placed in the path of the light, the black D-line is intensified. He also found that if he used a limelight instead of the sunlight and passed it through the flame with salt, 
the spectrum showed the D-line black. Or the vapor of sodium absorbs the same light that it radiates. This proved to him the existence of sodium in the sun's atmosphere. Iron, calcium, and other elements were soon detected in the same way. Extensive laboratory researches, still incomplete, have been carried out to catalog, according to their wavelength on the undulatory theory of light, all the lines of each chemical element under all conditions of temperature and pressure. At the same time, all the lines have been catalogued in the light of the sun and the brighter of the stars. Another method of obtaining spectra had long been known by transmission through or reflection from a grating of equidistant lines ruled upon glass or metal. H. A. Rowland developed the art of constructing these gratings, which requires great technical skill, and for this astronomers owe him a debt of gratitude. In 1842, Doppler proved that the color of a luminous body, like the pitch or note of a sounding body, must be changed by velocity of approach or recession. Everyone has noticed on a railway that on meeting a locomotive whistling, the note is lowered after the engine has passed. The pitch of a sound or the color of a light depends on the number of waves striking the ear or eye in a second. This number is increased by approach and lowered by recession. Thus, by comparing the spectrum of a star alongside a spectrum of hydrogen, we may see all the lines and be sure that there is hydrogen in the star. Yet the lines in the star spectrum may be all slightly displaced to one side of the lines of the comparison spectrum. If towards the violet end, it means mutual approach of the star and Earth. If to the red end, it means recession. The displacement of lines does not tell us whether the motion is in the star, the Earth, or both. The displacement of the lines being measured, we can calculate the rate of approach or recession in miles per second. In 1868, Huggins succeeded in thus measuring the velocities of stars in the direction of the line of sight. In 1873, Vogel compared the spectra of the sun's east, approaching limb, and west, receding limb, and the displacement of lines endorsed the theory. This last observation was suggested by Zollner. End of chapter 11